And we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to FedIt. Today, we're going to do a special episode. It's going to be the first successful prosecution of terrorism in the United States. This is going to be a wild one, guys. Let's get into it. I'm a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FedEx covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. You see him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young, young slime life. Here and after referred to as YSL. The defense is 6-9. Uh, and then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, 6-9 ran. I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. A.K.A. Pushaisi violated. You're ordered to stay away from the victim. Trapper Pushaisi arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, Miami Strip Club, injured See, one this person. Is the, this is the one that, that's going to fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, what happened at the gun range? Here's your boy 42 Doug right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. I'm gonna lock my trip right, right. And well, the first bomb went off right here. Sent down a backpack on the site of the second Inspired by Al Qaeda. Two terrorists, the brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lynn Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country. As this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. The days of the police are gone. So he was in this bad boy. We're going to go over his past, the gang ties, so that this all makes sense. All right, guys. Um, I'm here with a special guest you guys have come to learn and love. Hello, in the house. it's me again. I'll be, I'm back. And we're going to cover a terrorism case. Yes. What? This, this one's going to be... Uh, Angie doesn't know too much about this, so I just kind of sprung it yeah. on her. But real quick update. Um, we literally just got done searching everywhere for the BMF documentary that we have. We went through it. Literally it's everywhere. Good. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good it, documentary, but the quality of it sucks, guys. And we don't yes. want to dilute the quality. So if any of you are able to get your hands, and the name of the documentary is BMF, The Rise and Fall, Okay, directed by Don Sikorsky. If any of you guys are able to get that to me in HD, let me know. Uh, I will literally pay you for it. I can't find it anywhere, dude. Um, and actually, you know what? I'll go ahead and share a screen with y'all real quick so you guys know what it's called. So BMF, Rise and Fall. And it's a really good documentary. Um, honestly, it's uh, probably better than uh, the Stars remake that's going on right now. But this is it right now because the reason why I like this documentary so much is that it covers the um, the DEA investigators that actually did this investigation. You get like direct insight from them, and I think that's very important from a you know knowledge standpoint to really understand how they did this case. This was a very uh, complex drug investigation uh, into the Black Mafia family. So if anybody's able to get this documentary for me, it's on YouTube, but it's in crappy quality, and I don't want to dilute the quality. If any of y'all are able to find it for me, let me know. I'll pay you for it. Send it my way. But uh, yeah. Uh, I'm going to keep working to try to find a better version of it. But in the meantime, guys, we are going to cover the first successful prosecution of terrorism in the United States associated to Hezbollah. OK, it's been a while since we've done a terrorism case. So let's get right into a Hezbollah uh, party of Allah or party of God also translated uh, transliterated Hezbollah or Hezbollah, 
among others, is a Lebanese Shia Islamist uh, political party and militant group led by Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah since 1992. Hezbollah's paramilitary wing in the, is the Jihad Council, and its political wing is the loyalty to the Renis, uh, resistance bloc party in the Lebanese parliament. Ooh, that was a tongue twister right there. So um, we're going to be covering, guys, uh, a documentary. You guys know I, I love this documentary. It's called Declassified. Okay, and this is episode three, The Terrorist Next Door. Um, and yeah, let's just get into it. And I'll kind of explain it as we go. People on Donafield Drive may not have known who their neighbors were, but they knew something wasn't right. The scary part was to wake up in the morning and find out there was a terrorist cell operating here in their own backyard. Something illegal going on doesn't surprise me. But when you mention the word terrorism, I'm going, Lord have mercy. Hezbollah, prior to 9-11, killed more Americans than any terrorist organization. As soon as I saw that house, I knew something had to be. Yeah, after 9-11, Al-Qaeda took over. But these were the real guys, um, really bad guys, before the 9-11 situation. And as you guys can see here, we got some folk, uh, <laughs> some uh, history going on. You can see here, INS Special Agent. So, guys, as you guys know from watching this podcast, INS Immigration Naturalization Service existed prior to 9-11, right? And what they did was they enforced immigration violations, which what ended up happening was INS and the U.S. Customs Service combined to create one agency, which ended up becoming ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, with two different components in it, one called Enforcement Removal Operations, ERO, who was responsible for deporting the actual aliens. Then you got the special agents who did criminal investigations. So. Uh, or well, you got HSI, right? Sorry, you have HSI that does the criminal cases nowadays. So basically, an INS special agent and a custom special agent were merged into one agency. So that is the position I used to have when I was an agent myself. So INS is what we call a legacy agency because they no longer exist prior uh, post 9/11. Then you can see here, obviously, FBI agent, DSS, Diplomatic Security Service. Uh, I can't see what his ray jacket says, but as you guys can see, this was a case that involved several different agencies. Typically, when terrorism is involved. You got people from all branches of government working together. Going on, but this is pre 9/11, of course. There is strange love. Shouting death to America and their scenes of violence. Their mission was to become a sleeper cell to be activated if ordered to conduct an attack. We were sitting on a ticking bomb. As a former FBI agent, and began its occupation of West Beirut early this morning, pushing rapidly with tanks at APCs deep into the western sector. In 1982, in response to the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, several militia groups formed together with the support of Iran to establish a legitimate political party called the Party of God, Hezbollah. They were able to bring water to the communities to establish hospitals and, and maintain some semblance of education for the children during this war. In some ways, they are viewed as the savior of Lebanon. But their armed wing, Ansar Allah, the retainers of Allah, is an organized, disciplined, trained, and equipped fighting force. All right, so you got a retired um, assistant special agent in charge here, guys, which, um, let me rewind it back again. I want to make sure I have his title right. Retainers of Allah is an organized. Okay, yeah. So he's retired now, Robert Clifford. This, I am almost certain this guy was a case agent on this investigation. Um, but an assistant special agent in charge, just so you guys understand the hierarchy, one more time for all the new viewers. Special agent carries cases. It's at this level, right? That's a GS-13 or a government scale. Then above that is something called supervisory special agent. That's a GS scale 14, typically. Then above that is an assistant special agent in charge, which is what this guy ended up being prior to retiring. And then you go into 
um, special agent in charge or SAIC, uh, SA, uh, SAIC is what the FBI calls it. Um, at HSI, we call it SAC. Same thing, though, pretty much. So this guy was pretty much like two from the top when he retired, which is very high level. But obviously him talking about this investigation now, it was back when he was a regular agent carrying cases. Because once you become a supervisory special agent or above guys, you no longer carry cases. You're basically um, in a management slash support role for your agents. Disciplined, trained, and equipped fighting force. We do first recognize that Hezbollah uh, has a number of, of different dimensions to it. But the United States continues to be concerned about terrorist activities that go well beyond the borders of this country. So on one hand, Hezbollah has a local identity as a legitimate political party in Lebanon. On the other hand, they're a proxy for the Iranian government. They're engaged in terrorist organizations and act as a militia at the behest of Iran. So as you guys can see, he was a retired special agent in charge. So he finished pretty much one tier above the other guy uh, before he retired. Iran's sponsorship of Hezbollah is very comprehensive. It's providing weapons, training, intelligence, different types of covers. They view the United States as being the primary supporter of Israel and by extension, a legitimate active target. And this is, you know, kind of a little bit understated here, guys. This is a big problem why terrorists hate the United States in general. Let's just not, let's just, you know, keep it all the way 1,000 here. The United States support of Israel is a big reason why foreign terrorists from the Middle East typically attack the United States. If it weren't for the United States, Israel probably would have been taken over because it's in such a hostile territory. So the that part of the world looks at the United States as an obstacle because they arm the Israelis and they're a very strong ally. And they know that if they try to take back um, Israel, there's going to be some serious consequences for the United States. So this is why um, the United States and countries that support Israel typically come under attack from extremist groups from the Middle East. Prior to 9-11, no other terrorist group in the world killed more Americans than Hezbollah. The Marine Corps barracks bombing, 246 men killed. The American embassy bombing in Lebanon, a horrific, horrific attack. The hijacking of TW-8 Flight 847, where a U.S. Navy diver was singled out and tortured to death by Hezbollah and countless other attacks in the world. They have this global footprint. They have established themselves on virtually every continent in the world, in Africa, in Europe, in North America, in South America, in Southeast Asia. Hezbollah, not being a nation, not being a state, has the ability to travel throughout the world to embed themselves in different communities. Gaining all this combat experience and being directed, in many cases, by a country that has aspirations of becoming a nuclear power, it makes them extremely dangerous. In 1992, the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires was bombed by Hezbollah, followed by another attack on the Argentine-Israeli mutual... Yeah, they don't like them boys, if you know what I'm saying. ...association building. I was on assignment in Latin America at the time. Over 100 people had been killed by Hezbollah. Children in the grade school next to the embassy were shredded with glass. And I saw that there had been sleeper agents in those locations. 
And so when I became chief of the Hezbollah unit in the FBI, so I oversaw all counter Hezbollah operations worldwide. My primary objective was to find out, are there Hezbollah sleeper cells in the United States? Sleeper cells are so dangerous. So guys, sleeper cells are basically, you know, or a, a sleeper in this case, would be someone that's embedded in a community that is waiting for orders to be reactivated by their original people from whatever foreign country or organization they're a part of to conduct criminal activity, and in this case, terrorist activity um, in furtherance of that organization's um, ideals. So typically, they'll come into the United States, right, on a visa or come in legally some way, live in the, you know, embed themselves in the community, live a completely normal life, don't put any suspicion on themselves, and then what they'll do is they'll get activated once their people back where they're from, right, or their country or whatever it is, organization, tells them you need to get active. And there's another example of this, which another case I'll do for y'all, where there were sleeper cell spies in the United States from Russia for 10 years. The FBI followed them around and couldn't get evidence on them, but they were able to eventually get it. And these people had dug their talents so deep in the United States, like they had driver's license, passports, they were naturalized citizens. Like they totally sold being Americans, even though they ended up getting found out later on. But that's how um, deep a lot of these sleeper cells go to penetrate the United States, blend in, and then eventually carry out the attack when the time comes. Dangerous because they're well concealed and they fly below law enforcement radar. A sleeper cell is when foreign operators, could be a terrorist, it could be a spy, will embed themselves into a community. They will join clubs, they will go to school, they'll get a driver's license, they'll get a job. They take on all the appearances of being just another community member. They're sleepers because they're not committing the type of illegal activities that draw the attention of federal law enforcement. When actually they're establishing. And a lot of the times they don't break laws at all to make sure law enforcement never sees them. The capability to conduct espionage or conduct. Okay, as you guys can see here, this clip right here is from that case I told you about with the Russians. Um, this is two Russians meeting uh, in the United States who are U.S. citizens, etc., but they had been spying the entire time. The FBI was watching them, but this is a perfect example from that case I told you about before. ...an attack, if and when ordered to. In early 1995, an individual had run afoul of Hezbollah and was afraid that he would be killed. And so he walked into an American embassy and said, listen, I need some protection. And he reported that a dangerous Hezbollah operative was currently living in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that operative? You would never think <laughs> of a place like Charlotte for uh, a sleeper cell to be operating, but hey, that's how you fly under the radar. Was Mohammed Hamoud. Who gave you the tip? We can't disclose that. At this time, it's still classified. <laughs> of, course. of course, FBI classifies everything, man. Classified. Mind you, this case went down back in like the late 80s, 90s. And this documentary, I think, came out like 2000, or sorry, excuse me, like 2021 or something. So the fact that it's still classified to this day speaks volumes. <laughs> With this information, I contacted the Charlotte office and they initiated an investigation on this individual. They started coming across more individuals in Charlotte working together. They seemed to have some kind of group. As we got more intelligence from overseas, we started seeing that this could be a Hezbollah cell. No one would be looking for them here. This is not New York. This is not Los Angeles. 
This is Charlotte, North Carolina. Exactly. <laughs> you know, middle of the road American city that people don't really know about and or care to go to. The heart of America. When the vacancy for the terrorism supervisor in North Carolina opened up, I applied for a position and was selected. There was skepticism on the part of our headquarters, and everyone kind of chuckled because terrorism was so far from the minds of the FBI. They thought, there's Bob. You know, he yep, and hold on. That's an understatement. A big reason why, you know, 9-11 went down is because the FBI didn't take terrorism seriously. Okay, and I know some of you guys out there that say, oh, 9-11 was inside job, etc. Here's the thing that I'm going to do a whole episode of Ryan Dawson on this uh, about 9-11. But what I will say is this. The conclusion was, even though higher powers in the United States more than likely knew what was going on and there was other people involved, which I can't talk about right now. Y'all know what I'm saying? The boys. And uh, the FBI was actually trying to catch these guys. The problem is that the CIA did not share the information and the Bureau didn't prioritize terrorism enough back then to how do i say this to warrant cia sharing information if that makes sense yes they were the lead agency on terrorism back then but it didn't uh become their top top priority where they drop everything else until after 9-11 he used to be the hezbollah chief and now he's saying oh they're right here in my backyard well guess what they were Back then, the FBI was more concerned with the mafia, the organized crime in La Cosa Nostra. In early 1995, an individual reported that a dangerous and trained Hezbollah operative was currently living in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that operative was Mohammed Hamoud. Mohammed Hamoud was young, handsome, charismatic. He had uh, considerable combat experience. His father had been killed by the Israeli Defense Force, and he had familial connections with Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah. The Charlotte office started looking at this individual to find out, did Hezbollah have sleeper cells in the United States? Were they collecting intelligence for an attack? Did they pose a threat? For many years, Mohammed Amoud attempted to get a visa to travel from Lebanon to the United States. The consular officer that took his request smelled a rat. So Hamoud and his two cousins, the Darwishes, travel to Venezuela and they spend about 40 days on Margarita. Hey, your homeland. Margarita <laughs> Island. And they obtained some really poor fake visas that they oh, know shit. when they get to JF. Common in Venezuela? Not people really. Do that? No? Not really. Not anymore. Did people use this? Is quite shocking now because visas are very difficult to get now, mm. and we don't we don't even get it anymore in Venezuela. You have to travel outside to get Interesting. visas. Interesting. Probably th this is pre nine eleven though, so probably way yeah. you know. K are gonna be spotted. The three travel on separate planes and arrive in New York. Their false visas are immediately detected. They caught Mahmoud red-handed, and then he immediately claimed asylum from Hezbollah, that he was being persecuted by Hezbollah. And, and asylum, guys, is pretty much, you know, when you say, oh, I fear for my life, if I go back, I'm going to die, etc. And it's pretty much a green ticket to stay in the United States, assuming you're able to prove that fear is legit. But um, a lot of the times, people stay in asylum for a long time, period of time in the United States without ever really getting a decision. So. Um, it's very difficult for them to 
turn you back when you're able to show even just a little bit of evidence that you'll be killed if you're returned. And they bought it, hook, line, and sinker. So that gave him status, catch and release. He's out to do what he does as a Hezbollah operative here in the United States. There's another Hezbollah member already in Charlotte, North Carolina, and his name, Said Harb. He came to Charlotte from Lebanon in 1988, a wheeler, dealer, very astute with criminal activity. If Harb can make a buck, he would. And he was engaged in such a broad range of criminality, everything from visa fraud, marriage fraud, identity theft. He could. And these crimes, by the way, that they're mentioning right now are all immigration crimes, which makes sense why that INS, in such why that INS uh, special agent was involved in this case that you guys saw from the beginning. A broad range of criminality, everything from visa fraud, marriage. These crimes right here, this is why I used to investigate when I was an agent myself. Uh, and look, you guys can see all the licenses, credit cards, etc. He he was scamming before it was cool to do. <laughs> Yo, my man was out here scamming in the 90s before that thing was cool to do, man. <laughs> fraud, identity theft. He could talk a tin ear off a brass monkey. Saeed Harb could. So Hamoud and his cousins come down to Charlotte where they took jobs at Domino's. They wanted you to believe that they were here just looking for a better life. And Saeed convinced each of them to pay an American woman to marry them so that they could obtain a green card. Of course. He went out and found exotic dance. The re um, and guys, the fastest path to getting a green card in the United States is by far a green card, excuse me, is by far marrying someone who's a USC or a US citizen. Uh, all you basically got to do is marry that individual, show proof of the marriage, and wait it out for two years, and you'll pretty much get that green card. And then from there, you can adjust uh, your status and become a U.S. citizen. Dancers in Charlotte area, strip clubs, and then they're Domino's co-workers. The concept here is that you think you're just dealing with an immigrant seeking residency. You have no idea you're dealing with the terrorists. You know, I come here to Charlotte looking at this cell, who were they speaking with, what they were doing, and we start getting a picture of eight core Hezbollah operatives. Each one of these cell members was battle-hardened, but engaging in low-level criminal activity. You guys are going to notice it has those government exhibit pictures. These pictures all demonstrate, guys, that these individuals were involved with a foreign paramilitary group that doesn't necessarily see eye to eye with American policy uh, and or laws, which, you know, obviously adds to the charge of material support for a terrorist organization. So that's why you see these pictures being shown with government exhibit stickers on them. And I knew that all it would take would be some action in the world against Iran. It could be something that occurs in the Middle East or Asia, but in order to retaliate, Hezbollah could order an attack in the United States. Now you see why sleeper cells can be so sleeper cells can be so dangerous. One thing happens to their home country, they could tell them, "Hey, we need you to, you know, go do X, Y, Z, blow this up, blah, blah, blah." They're right in place, and they have the ability to do so almost without being caught because they pretty much acclimated to the society and they have status now in the U.S. I bring it to my fellow supervisors in the office, saying, "Can you help me investigate these crimes? I want to be able to have some kind of leverage to arrest them, to put pressure on them." I was initially skeptical that Charlotte, North Carolina would be some hotbed 
for a terrorist organization like Hezbollah. And I thought, well, maybe we're just trying to be relevant here. Maybe we're trying too hard to be considered an important field office. And they say, Bob, the FBI does not investigate or pursue such a low-level crime. We'd like to, Bob, we just can't. Before 9-11 and before the Patriot Act, there was a strict wall between criminal and intelligence investigators. Okay, and I've broken this down on other episodes, guys, real fast. Intel is gathering information. Criminal cases is building a case with evidence that you can actually use in court, not classified information, all right, to arrest someone. They're two different things. And this is why I've, you know, you guys know I've been fairly critical of the FBI. It wears two hats. It wears an intelligence hat while also being a law enforcement agency. And that's very difficult to do because both missions are kind of productive against each other. In the intel world, you're gathering information by any means necessary, whether it's waterboarding somebody or, you know, interviewing foreign contacts, whatever it is, right? You're just trying to get evidence, not evidence, excuse me, information, regardless of how you get it, by the way, to put the United States in a better position to be able to deal with their adversaries with knowledge. On the law enforcement side, you're gathering criminal, uh, you're doing a criminal investigation, gathering evidence that's going to be shown in a courtroom, okay, that has to be obtained legally and be done in a certain procedure with the U.S. Attorney's Office co-signed. So it's a lot stricter on this law enforcement side to build a case versus on the intel side. It's kind of the Wild West. Gather the information however you need to. It don't matter. It's classified. We're not prosecuting nobody. We do what we need to do. Okay? So that's kind of the strange situation that FBI often finds itself in because you can't do both well because doing one of them right well automatically impedes your ability to do the other better. That makes sense. Like the video, by the way, guys. Ain't nobody going to be able to give you guys that type of breakdown when it comes to knowledge and law enforcement because I've done both. Back in the 70s, the FBI had its wings clipped. The legislature in the country said, we don't want you to be spying on people in the United States. Intelligence cases are entirely separate from criminal cases. The intelligence side was to gather information, not to gather evidence, not to put people in jail. We were addressing terrorism like we did spies. Identify them, monitor them. There was no policy to break these cells up, but we had to find some way to pursue them. And that's the issue, because when you're dealing with spies, their job is to not bring any attention to themselves, gather information, give it back to their handler, and, you know, continue things going. The last thing they want to do is, you know, do an attack and have everybody look at them. However, with these terrorists, you have to be more aggressive because they are looking to do something if the time comes. So this is why, right, this is kind of faulty from the Bureau, applying a spy investigation to a terrorist organization puts you in a very bad position and can compromise you because you're basically in the reaction phase where you're waiting for them to do an attack. And that we saw what ended up happening with that, with the terrorist attack that occurred, whether it's the Boston Marathon bombing, 9-11, etc. One night, I was finishing up some work very late in the office. Probably everyone was gone. I went outside my office and saw an agent there doing some paperwork. I introduced myself and we started speaking. Bob caught me at a good time. I'd spent the first 11 years of my FBI career working criminal cases. Despite the fact that I'd been an intelligence officer in the Army, had traveled extensively throughout the Middle East, had Arabic language training, the Bureau put me to work on criminal squads. Rick Schwein had just come off of a very successful motorcycle gang investigation and prosecution. Which, by the way, I will be doing Hell's Angels for you guys as well. I've been researching 
uh, the Hells Angels and the Banditos, etc. So motorcycle gangs are definitely going to be featured on this podcast as well. Stay tuned. We don't sleep over here at FedEx, guys. We are diversified. We don't put our makeup on and talk about serial killers all day. We talk about all different types of crimes for y'all. This is exactly how I viewed this Hezbollah cell. All the things we see in a terrorist cell, you see in an outlaw motorcycle gang. And that's why I needed an agent who understood both worlds. Right off the bat, it's like, you know what? We've got a RICO case here. These guys are committing all these different crimes and we can prove the enterprise. His expertise was cases involving racketeering-influenced corrupt organizations called RICO cases in which you group together individuals and prosecute them in that manner. These people were affiliated because of their membership in Hezbollah. And because they were engaged in criminality, they were vulnerable to the use of criminal statutes, to including the racketeering statutes. That was their Achilles. And remember, guys, they were doing a whole bunch of crimes like marriage fraud, credit card fraud, etc. These are all crimes that could be constituted as racketeering activity within the confinements of the RICO laws, which we, if you guys want more breakdown on RICO laws, watch the K Flock episode I did. I go into real, uh, intimate detail with how RICO cases work and how they're able to prosecute individuals the as RICO, an organization. The RICO law was like, uh, there was made back in 1972. Like in the 70s, yeah. The 70s, to come, right? It was originally made for the mafia. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting that they're actually trying to do it here on a terrorism case. This is something you see often. Heal, Because in no other manner could we attack them except through criminal prosecution. Also, I want to make a very important distinction here. Guys, remember, at this point, there was no formal uh, terrorism charge that had been actually successfully prosecuted in the United States. So that's why they're going the RICO route, because prior to um, the whole 9-11 shebang, etc., people didn't really normally charge material support for terrorism, which is the main charge that the FBI goes for whenever they catch someone who's committing terrorist acts. By That's their bread and butter right there. Keating them for racketeering. They'll no longer ever have the chance to set that bomb off in the United States. To investigate the breadth of their criminal activity, we put together what I call a de facto joint terrorism task force. Was it funded? No. Was it official? No. But it was our task force. So we effectively developed this network to counter the Hezbollah network from the Diplomatic Security Service, from the Immigration and Naturalization Service, from the Charlotte Police Department, to all in their jurisdiction into a common effort. Our goal was to not only penetrate the cell, but to dismantle it and to tell Hezbollah, we know who you are and you will not be able to do that here. The Charlotte Hezbollah case began in earnest in March of 1997. The Charlotte cell was made up of eight Hezbollah operatives sent here to support Hezbollah and to be activated if and when ordered to, to carry out a terrorist attack. So we had assembled our de facto joint terrorism task force. Everyone had their expertise. We're working together to further develop this terrorism investigation. And this case is called Operation Smokescreen. It's a manpower-intensive effort to conduct a physical surveillance of a terrorism target. A number of people doing different things in order to stay on a target and not get exposed. One of the things we did was to rent the house across the street from Mohammed Hamoud. 
We needed FBI agents portraying themselves as a young married couple to monitor that. Yeah, when it comes to terrorism, yeah. I'll tell you how this, man. When it comes to terrorism, they spend money. And remember, this is pre-9-11. This is 97. So, you know, they were still trying pretty hard. But nowadays, if you if you had something like this today, the FBI would go be even more on it. These are the superpower, superpower puff guys of the FBI. Yep. It's 24 hours. And it's Charlotte. Let's be honest here. They, this is probably the biggest case in the office. So everyone is hands in, hands on, you know? Because this is a very small field office down there in Charlotte. Day to find out who's coming in there at what time, what's happening there. Mohammed Hamoud was sort of the spiritual leader and had grown up in South Lebanon and knew the Hezbollah leadership. So he was networked. He knew the players. And every Thursday night, he would have a gathering at his home. These Thursday night meetings were not just core cell members, just like biker gangs that had hangarounds. And they would come and Muhammad Hamoud would preach to them. And he was almost a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde personality. He was a really low-key, polite young man on one hand. And then at the prayer meetings, he would get fired up and he would be the motivational speaker. He would show speeches by Hezbollah leadership he would show videos of Hezbollah operations overseas. And they would cheer as these attacks were depicted on their propaganda videos, killing Americans, killing people. And then he'd solicit donations for the cause. Did you have someone on the inside of the cell? I can never discuss sources or methods. <laughs> it's After this hour had passed, of course, <laughs> a lot of people would leave, but there was a core group there. And then they would start talking about their activities. With Hezbollah, the marquee activities are bombing buildings and airplanes and high profile attacks. What we don't pay much attention to is how do they fund themselves? How does ISIS fund itself? How does Al-Qaeda fund itself? They're generating income, operating businesses, blending in, and they use that money to finance terrorism against us. Mohammed Amoud was the cell leader but the brains behind this entire conspiracy, this entire operation, it's Saeed Harb. So Saeed Harb, one of the things that he really got good at was adopting people's identities. He would make friends with people in the community in Charlotte, and they would go back to their country of origin. And before they went back, he'd say, hey, can I get your driver's license? And then he would basically adopt that identity and get a North Carolina driver's license in that name. And he had you know, seven or eight identities like that. His phone would ring different ways depending on which identity he was being called on so he could keep his identity straight. What? Almost all of them had an alternate identity. Mohammed Mood had them. Crazy, right? What a crack, man. <laughs> yeah, man. This dude was scamming before it was cool. Developed uh, alternate identity using the same methodology. With that identity, they would apply and obtain credit cards. They would then charge each one of these to its maximum amount purchasing cigarettes at one of the warehouses here. North Carolina is a tobacco producing state. Cigarettes are taxed at a very low rate. I think it was 50 cents a carton. Whereas in the Northern states, they were taxed at up to $13 a carton. They would drive these cigarettes, a complete truckload to Detroit or New York, where they would sell them to these small mom and pop shops. They would resell them. Now. This is a crime and a scheme, guys, that not many people do anymore, but it's extremely lucrative if you could pass it off, if you can uh, pull it off. And law enforcement doesn't really care about it. So uh, cigarette smuggling, as you guys are seeing right here, is actually (laughs) 
fairly popular. Um, it just, but the thing is, is that it goes under the radar most of the time because most agencies don't want to spend their time working it. You know, they don't do much time. They don't get this, you know, big, long, sexy sen sentences that prosecutors like. So this is a crime that kind of flies under the radar. But then again, that's why these guys are smart. They were in involved in crimes that people don't really care. Like these federal agencies don't really care about like that. Low and undercut crimes. their competition. Exactly. Very low key crimes. I mean, hell, cigarette smuggling. Like that's, most people don't even know if that's really illegal. But that's these guys. Small. Yeah, it's smart. Yeah. Because they weren't paying the taxes. So there were a number of traffic stops where police officers in different states would stop these people with a van load of cigarettes. The cell members were afraid they were being profiled as Arab males. So then what did they do? They hired females to drive these cigarettes up to Michigan or to New York. Saeed Harb was very good at recruiting females to drive for the group because he's just a charismatic guy. They all met and worked together at Domino's. That was the public facade. Hey, he's pimping domino hose. Hey, I need you to drive these cigarettes <laughs> in New York, bitch. <laughs> and that's how a lot of women got sucked into making the smuggling runs. C could you imagine? Like, you're sitting there working at fucking Domino's or something. You're, like, spinning the pizza. And then some Arab guy comes <laughs> up. Hey, I need you to help me out here, okay? Hello, Akbar! I need you to go ahead and get these cigarettes, all right? Move them up to New York, bitch, all right? But, but wait, why? Know. Yeah, It we'll wouldn't be like that, man. Actually, like... yeah, he wouldn't even say that. He would just be no. like, yo, I need you to drive this truck. It's XYZ. Can you please, like, they'd be charming. They'd be like, yo, I can pay you this, man, you know, to drive to New York, whatever, with this, like. Then he's like, oh, wait, no, hold on. A woman driving? Ah, uh, no. Nope. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I'll take the L on that one. Let's get back to it. <laughs> we estimate Misogyny. that every yeah. truckload of facts. Misogyny. Of cigarettes netted about thirty thousand dollars. Oh, and wow. making four or five trips a week for several years. Over eight million dollars. And this is just one of their criminal schemes. Yo, <laughs> they're getting thirty k a trip. They then use this money to purchase a pizza franchise, a house painting now. business, a used car lot, a gas station where they can launder these funds. Not only that, if they need more money, they commit insurance fraud. We know that they intentionally set fire to a pizza business they had for more money. So when you look at this case in its pieces, it's cigarette smuggling. So what? The credit card fraud and the identity fraud. Yawn. And that's uh, thirty thousand dollars, guys. In ninety-seven, is the equivalent purchasing power to about fifty-five thousand uh, nine hundred nineteen dollars today. Um, and it, yeah, that's quite a bit. So they were doing this three to four times a week so they're making damn they're making uh let's say they do it four times a week a quarter million that's a hundred that's 120k a month 120k a month is back then yeah, yeah that's a quarter million yeah almost it's two hundred twenty-three thousand. holy shit so yeah that's wild man yeah i'll show y'all <laughs> this real quick yeah, i'm in the wrong wild. business man <laughs> yeah dude <laughs> These guys are out here smuggling cigarettes and using chicks to do it. That spin pizzas. It's by design. It allows this organization to fly below the radar. But when you realize that you're dealing with terrorists, that they're going to exploit this innocuous criminal activity with lethal effectiveness, it changes the entire perspective of this. They're taking the proceeds from these crimes and sending it to a terrorist organization that prior to 9-11 killed more Americans than any terrorist organization. 
we continued to watch them for a long period of time without moving against them to ensure that this case was successful. My concern was that sleeper cells could be activated to conduct an attack based on something totally unrelated to where they are. When you're trained to think in terms of worst case, worst case is an attack in the homeland. We knew that this cell had weapons and they were conducting firearms practice with handguns and long rifles on the outskirts of Charlotte. These people had military training. They'd been to camps in the Bekaa. They'd been trained by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. They'd served in militias where they got combat experience. They didn't leave all that behind. They were keeping their skills sharp. In hey, any well, criminal investigation, yeah, you're order. investigating a bike. So oh, if these guys were like, um, they were like studying these people, they were living in front of their house, mm -hmm. and they were like researching and doing all the investigation. Yeah. Why? They they be knowing that they be doing these things, like these trips and everything, and it's illegal. Everything they're doing is illegal. Why wouldn't they? prosecute them um there, that's a really good question the reason why is because they wanted to build up the terrorism charge mm -hmm. first so that they so can they like, will let, let them do it they until let, they yeah. get like worse and this, worse and worse yeah this so this is the thing like uh, that's a really good question because i've been in a situation like this where you're investigating an individual and you know he's involved in more uh serious crimes mm -hmm. but the only thing you know that you can prove right now is a very lesser crime but you don't want him to stop doing the big crime so that you can actually prosecute him on that big crime. Because if they right. take him down for the cigarettes, dude, they might get a year probation. They might not even get jail time oh, for that. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So they're looking at it like, yeah, we could take him down. Yeah, we can seize a little bit of money. Yeah, we could kind of dismantle it for now. But what's the caveat? They're going to know that the FBI is looking at them. So they're going to stop talking to their, yeah. you know, Hezbollah members in, uh, all around the world. They're trying to get like the whole Rico. Exactly. They're trying to build the investigation. So like when you got petty crimes like this, it's okay to let it kind of keep going. Right. As long as like, no one's in danger, it is what it is. So you can build a, a bigger case. Right. Okay. Gang, they could kill somebody tomorrow. Then federal investigations, you have to be patient. If you step. Look at that. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ben, and you don't dig it up by the roots, the weeds just come right back. I and see. this is something that I noticed when I was when I was a Fed, guys. This is something that the state and locals don't really understand like that. So when the Feds come in, we're trying to do big, complex investigations. A lot of the times, like the state and locals, you know, they want to just take them down on a one-off. Oh, we caught them with again. Let's put them in jail now. Oh, we caught them with like, you know, an ounce of dope. Let's go put them in jail now. It's better to let them walk, figure out where they're going to go next after the criminal activity, identify the organization, and then take everyone down in one hole. But a lot of the times, it'll occur where state and locals want to take it down early. And that's why I told you all before, it's so important to work with the state and locals and have a good relationship because let's say you're looking at a guy that they're also looking at and that guy, to their knowledge, only sells gram levels of you know drugs. However, you meet with those state and locals, you share information with them and you tell them, hey, listen, bro, I know you guys are looking to arrest him, but let's hold off because I know he's tied into these other guys. So let's work this investigation together. And then bam, nine out of 10 times when you work with the state agency and tell them, hey, I want to bring y'all on board. Let's work this together. Uh, they'll forego whatever they got going on and help you with your case. The worst thing you could do is say, yo, don't take it down. This is my target. Don't take it down, blah, 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 blah. Then they're going to take it down and say, screw you. You know what I mean? You don't tell us what yeah. to do. So this is the importance of having state and locals on your team working with them. And if you do identify the same target through something called deconfliction, right? There's a whole database where, you know, you call in, oh, this is my guy. And then they, that's a whole other story for you. If you guys want me to break a, a deconfliction another day, I can. But for the purposes of this um, podcast, it's very important to build a case, work with the state and locals so that they don't prematurely stop the case 
and you all work together and get the arrest at the end and get a you know a big roundup. Because that's a win for the state and locals too. You know, they like being involved in big federal cases. It's just that they might not know all the time. When we investigated this case, we started talking to other agencies and I found out that ATF had this ready to go cigarette smuggling case. Alcohol took Oh, hold up. So this is different. You got a federal agency looking at these guys for the cigarettes. Tobacco and firearms had expended several years doing traffic stops and gathering evidence. This was much bigger than a cigarette smuggling case. This was okay. I'm, you know what? I should talk about deconfliction. All right. So, guys, deconfliction is basically when, when I was in Texas, the way it works is, and I'm not going to go into super, super detail because this is somewhat law enforcement sensitive. So, I'm just going to give you all the, the general of it. So, let's say I'm working a case as a federal agent, someone else working a case as a state officer, another guy's working a case for FBI, blah, blah, blah. And we're all looking at the same guy. You would call this intermediary, intermediary service. And put your guy in the database, right? And they just storm there, etc. Then another agency, because all the agencies use this same one intermediary, calls this person and says, yo, I want to put this guy in the database. If there's a match, like you put him in and then two days later someone else puts him in, what ends up happening is you get an email. Such and such individual queried your target through this intermediary service, right? And they'll put his number and his email there, right? And his name. So then if someone queries one of your guys and you get that deconfliction hit, the thing you should do immediately is call that guy and be like, hey, listen, bro, I work for such and such agency. I saw that there was an overlap. Uh, you know, what do you got? Blah, blah, blah. And then at that point, right, depending on how forthcoming the agent is or whatever it may be, and you always have to be super plain cordial when you do this, uh, they'll disclose something. Uh, and I'll be like, hey, is that guy a source? Is he an informant for y'all? Because a lot of times people put their informants in there to protect them, to make sure no law enforcement agents are looking at their sources or it's a target that they're trying to investigate. And that's where you, hey, hey is this your course, a source? I don't want to mess anything up. Is this a case you're working? Blah, blah. They're like, yeah, no, we're working this guy. We're looking at him for, you know, selling drugs. And then you're like, oh, well, we're looking at him for, for fraud, actually. Y'all want to get together, do a meeting. And uh, yeah, like the video. Shout out to Angie, by the way, in the back. Because <laughs> you, you ain't going to get this information anywhere else, all right? You know, you guys want to work together. Let's, you know, have a meeting and kind of deconflict and work the case together. And that's a lot of times how partnerships are made. Now, back in 1997, I doubt that they had something like this back then. So that is why they didn't find out till way later on that the ATF had a, already had a case on these guys. Okay, and remember, this is pre-9/11. Agencies did not work together like that the same way they do today. So it's very common in the government for people to be like, "No, it's my case, and don't share information." terrorism case and they didn't understand what they had i find out that the atf is about to make arrests which would completely destroy what we have been doing for over a year and the atf oh, has no idea that these guys are uh terrorists I found out about the atf case and i went to bob and i said hey they're getting ready to indict this we need to go to when he says indict, that means they're going to get ready to charge and arrest the guys, which would destroy their investigation. Got, <laughs> I ain't going to lie to y'all. I'm right now listening to this documentary and watching it brings back so many memories, man. I can't tell you guys um, how many times I've been investigating an individual. I get that email, such and such queried your target, or you're at the U.S. Attorney's Office and they're like, wait, you're investigating this guy? Hold on. 
this agent from this other agency is investigating this guy too, blah, blah, blah. And then like, you know, it's that back and forth, like, yo, please don't indict your case. We got him on this. And then y'all work together. Most of the time, uh, people that were always cool to me, I was always very polite. Hey, dude, I know you got your case going, blah, 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 but let's meet and talk about this. I guarantee you we can build a way bigger and better case um, if we share our information. And nine out of 10 times, they'll want to cooperate. But uh, th I've been in this situation right now where these agents are talking about where another agency is about to indict your guy. You got to run to the U.S. Attorney's Office. You guys are going to see what they end up doing here. It's actually really cool what they did. The U.S. And the U.S. Attorney's Office, guys, is the federal prosecutor. Attorney's Office. The ATF had this cigarette smuggling investigation in our office. Okay, that guy that just spoke was the U.S. Attorney on this case, or the AUSA. And it had been there a year or two. And they see me come in the door, and right away it's like, oh, here comes the FBI swooping in to take our case. And I say, stop. Before I say anything more, everyone in this room is going to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Oh! <laughs> Shit's about to get real. Like what? I think that's the first time in my then 15 years of being a prosecutor that I'd ever had to do that. It was very dramatic. Bob had him sign non-disclosure agreements because we were going to brief him on the intelligence case. Bro, literally, just put this in your head, guys. All right, you find out that your targets, who you think are terrorists, are about to meet with the U.S. attorney and start the indictment paperwork to arrest them. Next thing you know, you got like three ATF agents in there and the prosecutor. Okay, so we're thinking about indicting this on Thursday. Uh, all right, cool. Who's going to come in and, you know, provide the testimony, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, we could, uh, you know, schedule the arrest for like a week or two from now, you know, Christmas around the corner or whatever. Next thing you know, fucking FBI, open up! <laughs> and they break into the U.S. Attorney's Office. Hey, all of you, okay? You, uh, all of you are going to sign a non-disclosure agreement right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> y'all are all going to, y'all ain't going to indict this, man. You're going to sign this non-disclosure agreement right now. Do all of you guys have a top secret clearance? Yes? Okay, cool. All right. Sign this thing. We're going to brief y'all. <laughs> I can only imagine, like, the, the look on the ATF agents' faces and the U.S. starting, like, who are these guys? So, uh, yeah. And the ties to Hezbollah. So they started walking us through, essentially, the case that the ATF had been working on with the cigarette smuggling. Several slides of surveillance and some of the evidence had been gathered. And the U.S. attorney and I were both, you know, where is this going? And I say, this is not a tobacco tax evasion scheme. They put a slide up on the screen of eight men and said, there's a Hezbollah cell in Charlotte. And the room goes quiet. Bob's a really good briefer. So when he gave that presentation to Ken and the U.S. attorney, it was compelling. It was compelling. Man, I'm getting goosebumps right now. I remember this shit. So anytime you got a big case, guys, it's about selling the case to the prosecutor's office. And 99% of the time, if your case isn't spoken about in a certain way, they don't they don't see that passion. They don't see that you really know what the hell you're talking about, that you're not squared away. You're not able to cross T's and dot I's and know what's going on. They're not going to take you seriously. So a lot of you guys ask me, Martin, how do you, do you have such like good um, public speaking skills? How are you able to think on your feet? It's because of this right here, guys. I can't tell you how many times I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, got to present my case because I need funding or I need more help. I need more assistance. Investigations are very expensive. You need to be able to articulate why you need the resources, the money, the manager backing, the travel money, whatever it is to get this investigation done. So if you're able to present a case properly, you're going to get the need, uh, the resources you need. So shout out to the other agent for being able to go in there and give a presentation to kind of put everyone on notice that, yo, this is bigger than all of us. Let's work together.
leaned over to the U.S. attorney and I said, I think I'll take this one. Yeah, of course, that's a career maker case, man. <laughs> Ken Bell was the chief of prosecuting criminal investigations in the Western District of North Carolina. I met with the ATF agents and said, we're going to have to slow down indictments in this case. And I can't tell you why right now, but they were unaware that the people they were investigating were Hezbollah. Ken, as the lead prosecutor. Oh, so ATF didn't even know. Okay, so they kicked those ATF agents out now then. <laughs> or maybe they showed up when the ATF agents weren't there and told them what was really going on. Immediately established liaison with the Department of Justice. We had meetings in D.C. to discuss the investigation. And I think it was at one of those meetings that somebody just said to me, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service has an investigation related to this, and they have information that would be of great interest to you. That's when you know shit is serious. When other country intelligence agencies come and give you information, that's when you know you're on the right track. So well, what would that be? I said, we can't tell you. And so I said, well, I guess we should go to Ottawa and meet with them and ask them what they have that would be of interest to me. So several of us, including Rick Schwein, took that trip to Ottawa to meet with CSIS, Canadian Security Intelligence Service, which is sort of their CIA. That began a very long dance with Canadian authorities at very high levels. It was like, yeah, we're willing to listen to you, but we don't want to give up our sources and methods. They had a guy, their head legal guy, his name was Mike, and he's this big, burly Canadian guy. And he's a former Royal Canadian Mounted Police, just a bear of a man. So we're Royal Canadian Mounted Police guys is the RCMP. That is Canada's equivalent of the FBI. It's their national police. Sitting at this big conference table, we've been at it all day. I'm tired. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to lie to you. I was tired. Mike out of nowhere goes, I'm going to get a smoke. Anybody want to go? I think it was January or February in Ottawa. It was cold as hell. It's probably like 20 below. I mean, it's freaking cold. And Ken Bell was sitting across the table from me. And I, I kicked him under the table and I said, Ken, go smoke with him. I wasn't really much of a smoker, but I said, okay, I'll go. I don't know what they said. You'll have to ask Ken. But they had a rooftop conversation, and things changed right after that. <laughs> hey, the one time that smoking a cigarette actually goes to your benefit. He said, Ken, what do you fuckers really want? And I said, well, Mike, we want to take CSIS's holdings and take them into a federal courtroom and use them to convict a bunch of terrorists. And he said, I think we can help. The Canadian Security Intelligence Service had been. This is the that's, importance, that's guys. They, they shaked hands right there. Yeah, like this is the importance, guys, of building relationships. Mm -hmm. Whether it's law enforcement, it's freaking YouTube, whatever it is, it's not what you know. It truly is who you know and how polite you are and being able to give people something of value to get things done. And this is, you know, the epitome of working together with other agencies and making sure you take care of them. They take care of you. I'm sure that the U.S gave them a bunch of information on individuals that could be of a threat to Canada. So this is the game when you're playing at this level. I'm conducting surveillance on Saeed Har and watched him cross into Canada because the Canadians had this other cell in Vancouver. Saeed's best friend, Mohamed Dabouk, was the leader of the Canadian cell. They'd grown up together. And Dabouk had volunteered to be a suicide bomber several times. And he had produced all these combat videos of martyrdom operations. The Canadians had surveilled 
Harb in Canada, and he had provided Dubuque with alias identifications and counterfeit credit cards. They had them in a cigarette pack. And that was to help facilitate the purchase of dual use equipment that they couldn't get access to or weren't being given access to in Lebanon and Iran. Dual use equipment is not illegal to possess. Things like night vision goggles, they can be used for benign purposes. They can be used for military purposes to kill people. You can possess a stun gun. You can possess GPS, but you know what they're using that for? Mortar rounds to create fields of fire. Stun guns, what are you gonna do with a stun gun? You're gonna torture somebody. Some of the stuff that they were getting looked like they were trying to build a remotely piloted vehicle or drone. And then ultimately we know in 2006, Hezbollah successfully used drones against the Israelis. Once the Canadians agreed to share their information, it completely changed the dynamic of the case. And the reason for that is it really paints the global reach of Hezbollah. Yeah, that's a big find for the FBI because now they can articulate that they got a transnational terrorist organization operating in Charlotte. So tell me that's not going to make headlines and put the U.S. Attorney's Office on notice to take this thing to the furthest level. The cell in North Carolina would send money to Canada. The Hezbollah cell there would purchase these items and then transship them to Hezbollah in Lebanon and throughout the world. And Canadian surveillance picked up Hassan Halou Lakis, the head of Hezbollah's procurement operations globally, directing Dubuque to obtain this equipment. You've got a cell in, in North Carolina, a cell in Canada. You've got key players in Hezbollah and Lebanon directing these activities. It's a global operation. Bam. And there's the conspiracy, my friends. So you had this statute that was on the books that gave you a tool to go after these organizations. Nobody had really used yet. This statute called a material support statute makes it illegal to assist a designated terrorist group with something of a material nature, a money, weapons, dual use equipment. Providing support to a terrorist organization is the same as being a terrorist. And in this case in particular, this eight member terrorism financing cell could become a bomb throwing terrorist cell with the flip of a switch. So one of the things that became very apparent was a desire by the United States government to test the statute, to make a material support case against a terrorist organization and headquarters wanted the material support statute to be used as a vital tool in our fight against terrorism, but they had to show it could work. The case progresses, and I was constantly getting communications from the highest levels of the FBI. Bob, when are we going to take this down? When are we going to make it? Because there was a concern that even if a small attack took place, are you telling me that the FBI knew a Hezbollah cell was operating for four years and you did nothing? And I felt just like any other criminal enterprise case, that you had to have an insider. We needed somebody that could talk about the dynamics within the group, and we needed somebody that could definitively say that money was going to Hezbollah. I found out that the core group got together on Sunday afternoons and played soccer in a park in Charlotte. So I went to the park and they were some players short, and I managed to get an invitation to play, and I spent the afternoon kicking a soccer ball and playing in a pickup game with the people that we had under investigation with the core Hezbollah cell, the Darwishes, the Hamoud, Saeed Arb. And it was interesting because you can tell a lot about somebody on a soccer pitch. <laughs> Hamoud was quiet and hard. This is crazy that he did this. <laughs> this is This would never fly to, in today's day and age, guys. If you want to do something undercover like this, like 
You need approvals up the wooza. You need a million people involved. And nowadays, guys, little secret that you guys aren't going to find anywhere else here, uh, but fed it. If, a F- if the FBI is doing a terrorist, organi- uh, terrorist case, the case agent can't even make contact and do an interview without like HQ approval. So that just shows you guys how much times have changed uh, to now. The FBI has their hands tied a lot. They can't do as much as they used to be able to do. Um, but yeah, the fact that he's out here playing soccer with a terrorist, <laughs> like in a non-undercover capacity, hey, is wild. That out yeah, like, like the nineties were different, bro. <laughs> I played soccer with a terrorist. Yeah, <laughs> you can say that. That would never fly today, man. Because I, I know the FBI policies. Because I got a, um, I've worked with them so much, so I know for a fact when they do terrorism cases, like. Just to interview your suspect, you got to go through a million chains, you know, and it's your case. So this, <laughs> this is wild. Herb was one of these bigger than life guys, very skilled player, very selfish player. The game ended and the core group, the cousins and the brothers went off to eat together. Herb didn't go with them. And he went to a bar, watched a football game, ordered some alcohol. And I thought, you know what? This is somebody that's going to become our insider down the road. You thought you could flip him? I thought I could flip him. Interesting case, right, Angie? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah, I, I knew you'd enjoy this one. I think the audience, guys, if you like the video, give me a, give me a like. Yes, man. people, like the video. Yeah. Like I said before, um, we're going to definitely cover BMF, guys, but I like to keep the cases diversified. It's been a while since we did a terrorism case, so let's uh, let's keep going. Anytime you're dealing with a terrorist organization, which we considered the Charlotte Hezbollah cell to be, you run the risk they're going to commit some violent act. And so you hold the safety of the American people in your hands. It was my decision. At a very specific time, I thought we have enough criminal information to dismantle this Hezbollah cell. At that time, I said, let's take it down. So Rick Schwein begins preparing an affidavit for searches. We drafted a hundred plus page affidavit. It's one of the longest affidavits I've ever written. Like myself, we both were biker gangs. We were killing the biker gangs with the RICO statue. And one of the things we would do before we indicted a RICO case was go hit their clubhouses and find indicia of an organization doing things together to commit criminal acts. So we fashioned the search warrant so that we... Okay, hold on. So they got this search warrant here. Let's go ahead and have fun with this, guys. So I'm, you see here, 300M16. So that means that a magistrate judge signed off on this, and it was the fiscal year uh, 2000. So what we'll do is I'm going to go on Pacer real fast for you guys. Uh, and I'll show you all how to do this real quick as well. So open up Chrome. And what we're going to do is we're going to go on Pacer, right? Like the video, guys, because ain't nobody going to teach you guys this, how to look up cases. <laughs> right. Uh, let's see here. Log in. Actually, this was, um, what was this? The Western District of, what was the district again? Let me look here. Disha of an organization doing things together to commit criminal acts. So, God damn it! All right, I'm uh. We fashioned this search warrant. 
okay. Look, so what I'm looking for at North Carolina, which district? So that we can... District of... Oh, my God. Boom, book, man. Boom, book, God. Because it's supposed to be... Oh, Western. Okay, bam. See how I can see it right here in the corner? Western District of North Carolina. All right. So now that we know that... Shit. Yeah, I got that eye, huh? Because I know how these uh, affidavits are written. So, uh, so you're going to go ahead uh, and go Western District of North Carolina. Right? And you're going to go here. Oh, no, hold on. It's going to be case. Search. Gonna come here. All right. Freaking... It's not there? No, it's it's here. It's just that. Is it not here? Case locator, placer? Oh, this right, right here? No, no, no. Press the, press, go back. Oh, no, this is it. This is right here. So oh, you know okay. you're on the right page, guys, when it's all white like this, right? And I'll enlarge it so y'all can see it. So you go ahead and click Western District of North Carolina. You're going to hit Query, right? And then what you're going to do is type that match number in. So it was three. Three. Colon. Zero, zero. Or actually, zero, zero. M. I think that's one, six, one. Or they might have sealed it. Let me see here. M1. Yeah, it's 161. Yeah. You got it right. Hmm. Are you sure this is two dots, though? You know what I might be able to do? I just don't put. All right. I'm going to yeah. find this on the side for y'all guys. Search warrants are tricky to find. Affidavits for like uh, uh, arrest warrants are easier, but uh, I'm going to find this for y'all. We fashioned the search warrant so that we could seize evidence that would support a RICO prosecution and also support a material support prosecution. Rick assured me that, Bob, we can make this RICO case. We're not sure about material support, but this was the very best opportunity that the FBI, that the United States had to successfully prosecute them in that manner with a law that's never been tried before. And there was a lot of pressure not to fail. And there were a lot of people who questioned whether it could be done. All right, so I found it, guys. Um, this is the, uh, these are the cases right here when I searched his name, uh, Muhammad Arb, right? And you guys can see all the different dockets here. But for some odd reason, 161 is not in here. 161 is a search warrant these are probably the criminal complaints. So if I click this one and run report, since this is an old case, it probably won't show. Let's see here. Oh, seizure warrant issued. Hmm. Take a look at it. All right, view all. What the hell? Yeah. They won't show it. What the hell? All right. Pacer is acting funny. It's an old case, too. I called together a team of 250 officers. Of course, it's a freaking government website that always craps out. So hundreds of agents from all different agencies, state, local, and federal, gathered together at the command post to get their briefing to fan out and conduct searches and arrests across Charlotte. This is a, a massive operation. 
they all had to happen exactly at the same time or word would get around and you lose defendants and you lose evidence. Remember, Chris Wecker tapped me on the shoulder while I'm briefing all of our agents. They're getting their search packages. I'm talking about the case, giving them a complete view. And Chris taps me. All right, never mind. I found it, guys. Did a little bit of digging and here it is. This is the actual search warrant, guys. Uh, it looks like. So you guys can see here's the affidavit, right? All the facts involved in the case, and they just outline it, outline it. They show money. And then you can see here at the bottom. Yeah, he did say it was a hundred page affidavit. Yeah, look at all the look, look how long this thing is, man. He wasn't kidding when he said he wrote a almost a hundred page affidavit. Here he is, boom. Richard D. Schwein, David Howell. Um Oh, it looks like two agents signed this. That's strange. And then even a even F, ATF. This is uncommon, but this is two thousand. It's probably a while ago. But yeah, it's not normal to have three affiants on one document. I've never seen that before. But every district is different. And then you can see here Appendix A what they're going to search. Right. This is a monster affidavit because it, what what they want to take. Oh, there it is. The names of everyone. Yeah. The the list. So he wants he wants no, but he wants uh, records or documents concerning the following individuals including known aliases. So he, so basically what he's doing here, guys, with the search warrant is he's writing the probable cause up to justify what he wants us to search, which is all these different addresses, and what he intends to take pertaining to these individuals. So it's very detailed what he wants. Currency, photographs, all this stuff is in here of what he wants. And it's normal for you to go ahead and like put things as fairly open... Uh, open so it gives you a little bit more leeway to get what you want now with that said the judge has still got to sign on it some judge might say oh this is too broad i'm not going to give you the warrant but uh as you guys can see he has 84 pages justifying why he needs to search the properties etc and he goes over all the facts and the way i found this guys just to backtrack our work here is you put the name in right going back to that original thing you put the oh, backwards back again back again so yeah i just put in his last name first name and then i hit run query and that's what brought me up all this stuff and the only difference guys between these mjs and the cr the cr means it was indicted formally the mj mean that means that these were documents signed in relation to a magistrate judge and when it says um gcm right that just means uh the whole that means the whole squad Versus when it's just dash seven, that means that's the defendant. You always want to click the one that's like without a number because then it will give you the entire case because it says at all. That's what you typically want to search. Like the video, guys. You ain't going to get sauce like this anywhere else. On the shoulder and says, this has been put on hold. I have to go up to Washington. All right, so let's rewind that real quick. But exactly. Gathered together at the... I called together. So they're talking about doing a search warrant. They're a team of 250 officers. So hundreds of agents from all different agencies, state, local, and federal, gathered together at the command post to get their briefing to fan out and conduct searches and arrests across Charlotte. This is a, a massive operation. They all had to happen exactly at the same time or word would get around and you lose defendants and you lose evidence. Remember, Chris Wecker tapped me on the shoulder while I'm briefing all of our agents. They're getting their search packages. I'm talking about the case, giving them a complete view. And Chris taps me on the shoulder and says, this has been put on hold. I have to go up to Washington. 
That is the worst. You got 200 agents in town ready to do these warrants, and now they're telling you you freaking got to hold it back? Dude. There was a huge backlash from the Justice Department, starting with Janet Reno. So the operation was halted in its tracks. 200 officers, 18 search sites, massive operation by one person, the Attorney General. I felt like, oh no. L Attorney General. We could lose this case. I mean, I had all these people standing by, ready to go. The op orders had been written. You know, I'm the criminal case agent. This is why I exist. To go kick doors down and put people in handcuffs and gather evidence. Rick Schwein being passionate and emotional. We had to peel him off the ceiling. And I have no idea if we're going to be able to execute tomorrow or never. Ken and I decided we had to get to D.C. as quickly as we could. We needed to convince her in a very compelling way that this needed to go forward. So a lot was riding on that trip to D.C. So we went and had a meeting with the attorney general sitting at the head of a long conference table. And this is a big deal, guys. The attorney general is the chief law enforcement officer in the United States, presidentially appointed. OK, so a woman. Yeah. So th this is a big deal that they're going to meet with her. But again, she is a woman, so that's why she's messing this case up. And this is why women deserve less, guys. No okay? way. Book in no stores person. right now so you don't end up like this bimbo here trying to stop a terrorism investigation of one of the most dangerous cells. <laughs> Freaking terrible. L, <gasps> Attorney General. Get the book, guys. Why women deserve less. Well, you know, it was a stressful setting because, all right, so we, we've spent years now doing this. We're ready to go. And Attorney General Reno started asking questions about in this search warrant affidavit, it, it says Hezbollah terrorists. The Attorney General was very hypersensitive about calling people terrorists when you're not arresting them for terrorism itself and said you're arresting them. Bruh. Bumbaka! That's the point. You don't want them to go ahead and commit a terrorist attack, man. Oh, man. This, see, stuff like this, this is political. These are stupid technicalisms. Yeah. Like, and, and the reason why is because when you mention that word terrorism, the country panics. Yeah. You know? Of course. And That's this was why. way before 9-11. And, yeah, and this crazy part is this is before 9-11. So imagine after. Yeah. Um, for racketeering, credit card fraud, cigarette smuggling, money laundering, and you're calling them terrorists in this affidavit, that needs to come out. The attorney general looked over at one of her subordinates and said, you and Ken and Chris go in the other room and work through this. Long story short, we had to rewrite the search warrant affidavit to take no. out every word that the Department of Justice found offensive. 102 pages. <laughs> Bruh. <laughs> Gay! And we went through it line by line with the ruler. So we fixed the affidavit to their satisfaction. We caught the next plane out. We called Bob Clifford. We said verbally over the phone, get ready to go. And so on July 21st, 2000, at six o'clock in the morning, with 250 agents, three SWAT teams spread out in various locations, I give the order, execute. A three and a half year investigation of cigarette smuggling and terrorism came to a blaring climax today. ATF SWAT team did the entry at Mohammed Hamoud's house. Hamoud grabbed a handgun as the team was making entry, and he dropped it as the entry team was coming up the hallway. Oh, yeah. He gave up peacefully. People arrested, and soon residents amazed to discover that their neighbors are actually suspected of supporting a notorious Middle Eastern terrorist organization. The arrests of 17 individuals and the searches of 19 locations happen at the same time. I was on the team that was going to Saeed Harb's house, they bring Saeed and his family out. 
I had been focused on Harp because I really felt we needed that inside view. I introduced myself and you know, tell him I'm with the FBI. I'm obviously wearing a raid jacket. And um, the first thing he says to me is, hey, uh, why the SWAT team? It's not like I'm a terrorist or anything. And I just said, well, we're going to talk about that. So he says, you look familiar. And I said, well, I, I played soccer with you one Sunday. I guess he figured out that if I was playing soccer with him, I really knew everything I needed to know about his life. He had this recognition on his face that he was in big trouble. <laughs> we had a staging area at the National Guard Armory where we processed, fingerprinted all these guys. We took him to a room, we Mirandized him, and we interviewed him. So he talked about the cigarette smuggling and the credit card fraud and the alias identifications. And he really just talked and talked and talked. And after several hours, we got him something to eat. He finally looked at me and he said, uh, put your pen down, stop writing. Here we go. And I said, okay, put my pen aside. He said, I know why you're doing this to me. You want the book, you want Hezbollah. He instantly knew, bro. He because he knows that's the whole reason they did the cigarette smuggling because they knew no one would, would care. So yeah. for the FBI and all these guys to hit their houses the way they did, raids, uh, you know, with SWAT teams, etc., for cigarette smuggling, he's not stupid. He knows why the FBI is involved. So <laughs> let's see what happens next. I remember Rick and Bob coming to me and saying, we need a live witness to testify about material support or we won't be able to make the case. We Mirandized Saeed Harp and we interviewed him. And we talked to him for several hours. He finally looked at me and he said, you want Dubuque, you want Hezbollah. It was one of those great moments that you live for as an investigator, right? <laughs> he knows, I know what this is about and that's the opening. And he said, I can't talk to you about that right now and I need to think about this. And that's when the Canadian information became critical. That Canadian evidence showed that he had direct contact with Mohamed Dabouk in Vancouver. We had surveillance photographs of Dabouk and Harb together, photographs of them together with fraudulent Yay, credit cards. Classified. Meeting at times and places <laughs> required dual use military equipment for Hezbollah. Once he knew he was gonna be charged with material support to terrorism, that's when he knew he had to strike a deal. The negotiation turned to, I will cooperate with you, but I've got concerns about my family in Lebanon. His view was, and I expect he's right, that if it came to be known that he was cooperating in our prosecution, his family would be dead. Oh yeah, that's a no brainer. So Ken was the guy that was taking the point on moving the family to the US. And this guy was smart. He didn't start talking until the government can guarantee his family's safety. You know, and this is what, uh, you know, if you're ever arrested by the police guys, God forbid that ever happens to you or by the feds or whatever, and you have information that they want, you want to make sure you say, yo, I want a lawyer. If you guys want me to cooperate, I'm not doing it without a lawyer. And then what you do is you get your law involved from the beginning. You don't say a fucking word and you let the lawyer know, hey, I'm willing to cooperate, negotiate something on my behalf. Because until you have a lawyer, you can't really do anything. And what it does is it puts the power on your side as a defendant, right, to say, I need something before I cooperate with y'all. And typically, um, 
That's the best way to go about it um, with a, through a defense counsel. My first idea of how to get Harp's cooperation. Like the video. You're not going to get advice like that anywhere else, bro. If you get arrested <laughs> by the feds, don't say shit. <laughs> but it, it was a necessary thing. We wanted his cooperation. We wanted to be able to tell the story fully. And to do that, that was his condition. The full power of the United States government was put in play to make that happen. But the See, that's what happens when you leverage correctly, especially with a high stakes case like this. They were thoroughly vetted. I mean, these were like children, women, grandparents. We flew them out and brought them en masse to Washington to a hotel. And that happened over. I've done that plenty of times. Paroled in witnesses for a what? case or, yeah. You can do that? You can absolutely do it. I, I did it before. Right before I left uh, HSI, I paroled in like 12. I didn't know it was that easy, man. Like 12, like somewhere between 6 to 12 witnesses for my case. So, yeah, it can absolutely be done. Easter weekend of 2002, I think. Was it secret? I mean, it's pretty ineffective to try to get... Well, it's not really the FBI that does it. It's the, I, it's the INS that did it for them. And if you guys look at this affidavit I showed y'all before, I think there's a, the reason why, which I thought was weird, but it kind of makes sense now. You see here that there's three case agents that signed this affidavit. Kent, which is from the ATF, David from INS, then you got obviously Schwein, the guy that's involved in this uh, documentary from the FBI. So... This was uh, a joint case because I've never seen it before where three different um, agents signed an affidavit. That was probably some, you know, political BS where it's like, yo, we want all of our agencies involved in this affidavit. You know, this is a big case, blah, 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 uh, because that's not uh, usual at all where there's multiple affiants. Smuggle people out of the country. People know you're trying to smuggle them out of the country. We didn't want Hezbollah to know, that's for sure. And as soon as his family was spirited out of Lebanon, he signed the plea agreement and agreed to testify. Sirens blasting, shotguns at the ready. Federal agents took extraordinary measures today as they led 17 men and women with alleged links to a terrorist group into the federal courthouse in Charlotte. We went to trial in June of 2002. There was a lot of security in place. And there were counter snipers on rooftops and helicopter patrols and a lot of security with the movement of the defendants in the case. Yeah, first uh, successful terrorism charge in U.S. history. And the courthouse in Charlotte, North Carolina, became just a big circus. Harb cooperated completely, testified not only to what was going on out of Canada with the dual-use equipment and Mohammed Dabouk's role. He confirmed for us that Mohammed Hamoud was raising money for criminal conduct. One by one, the gotcha, cell members were pleading guilty, and 24 individuals pled guilty to marriage fraud, document fraud, RICO. Only two left standing were Hamoud and his brother. They went to trial. Stupid. I did. It's nerve-wracking. Everybody expects the Perry Mason moment, right? You get the defendant on the stand, and he admits that he's guilty. And he admitted that he supported Hezbollah, but only the charitable wing of it. But they engage in violent acts and sponsor violent acts all over the world. Hezbollah paid very close attention to this. They followed the trial closely. How do you know? And just know. The FBI had an informant in the county jail where Mohammed Hamoud was being held, who told them that Hamoud had put out a contract to first blow up the evidence at the courthouse, and that he also wanted two bullets in the brain of that arrogant bastard prosecutor. Holy wow. shit. Talk about, bro, how, how are you all get arrested for being a terrorist and make another terrorist threat? <laughs> like, that doesn't help while you're in jail. Is that you? Apparently, yeah. We acted on that very quickly. 
you know, we were able to take some steps to protect Ken and his family. There was law enforcement all over my house. The FBI wanted to send. Remember, guys, AUSAs don't have guns. They're prosecutors. It's the law enforcement that has the weapons, of course. Agents to my kids' schools picked them up. They wanted my wife and sons to leave the area and go into protective custody. The FBI put a remote starter on my car and started carrying a, a weapon. And I was thinking, if they want me dead, I will be dead. We confronted him about it. And... Of course, he denied it. And to clarify, him saying I'm carrying that weapon, that was his personal use weapon. We polygraphed the source. We learned that Hamoud was open to the idea of the prosecutor being killed, but it wasn't his idea. But he was quite willing to go along with it. There's no doubt about that. My wife thought when it came out, because it was in the Charlotte Observer front page, arrogant bastard prosecutor. He said, you know, what wife gets to see confirmation of what she's known for years right in the newspaper, that her husband's an arrogant bastard? <laughs> the jury went out, and the jury stayed out for three days to come back with the verdict of guilty. We immediately notified headquarters we have got the first material support conviction in the country. Originally, Muhammad Hamoud was sentenced to 155 years in prison. There was an appeal that went up to the Holy. Supreme Court, and he was sentenced to 30 years. How many sentences? He was sentenced. Did what was that? How many sentences? Oh, uh, I think it was one. It was 155, then brought down to 30. The prison term. He's out of prison now and has been for some time. Smokescreen broke up what federal prosecutors say was a ring. Smokescreen still is the most important terrorism case, talking about terrorist organizations and how they fund themselves. It was a benchmark case for the first use of the material support statute. It was the first conviction at trial in American history. And the hey. Down the Marcos, Which laid Marcos. the groundwork for all the future terrorism investigations that you guys know now. The proof now is the fact that it's been used over a hundred times since this case came about. It is the primary tool to address ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Every single indictment of an ISIS or Al-Qaeda person has included material support. <laughs> Yeah, Absolutely. Go. They do low-level criminal activity that generates a lot of money. So it's hard to picture them as a, you know this thoroughly dangerous organization that they are. It's not a leap that this cell could have become operational if it was in the best interest of Hezbollah or Iran. I would submit that Hezbollah represents a clear and present danger to the United States right now. Because with all the attention paid to ISIL, just in the corners, just under the radar is Hezbollah. As a matter of fact, Hezbollah is stronger than ever. Bam. And there wow. it is, guys. W documentary. Uh, and you like that one? Yes. Yeah, I knew you would enjoy it. Uh, guys, That that's actually one of my favorite episodes on Declassified. Um, Angie, what are your thoughts on that? I really like that. It's quite interesting. I mean, I didn't know that much about terrorism here in America, mm -hmm. but that's crazy. I mean, how they managed to build something so big yep. from nothing. Yeah, from like one source coming in and saying, yo, there's this guy in the U.S. doing this stuff. And yeah. they were able to like identify an entire network, you know, that's, that's into insane. Canada selling weapons illegally. Like it was a really good case and, you know, brought me back a lot of memories as an agent myself. So I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that one. Like the video, follow Angelica, guys, at So Angelica, as she would say, with two A's at the end. Uh, don't forget to send her a dick pic as well. No. <laughs> I'll catch you guys on the next episode of Fed It. Peace. Peace.
special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling,